Very cool. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you again to all of our veterans, and uh, God bless you. Uh, we love you, and we appreciate you all. Um, our theme verse for this year, our theme is Raised with Christ. We want to try to be as good as I can about reading it every week, just to remind us of what our theme is as a church, keeping focused on what uh, God wants us to be doing in His Word, and that theme is Raised with Christ, coming from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Raised up with, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Last week we started a, a series of study. Uh, in the first sermon of the study, we talked about the foundational things that concern the end times. I hope that you were here. If you weren't, you can catch that on our YouTube channel. But such an important uh, foundational kind of um, uh, study there to, to get this kicked off. We looked at the condition in the beginning of mankind and also the crisis at the end of this world. We looked at the sin of Adam, and then we contrasted it with the snowball of what God's Word tells us will be uh, the end times or the condition of man in the end. And uh, we just looked at it, right? As someone once said, we just looked at it. And uh, but seriously, the, the, the crisis in the end, the crisis at the end of time, as Scripture says, uh, which I believe that we're living in, is, 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 is no laughing matter. It's not something to um, take lightly. I think it's to, to take soberly and uh, with, with great seriousness. We saw the sad reality of the biblical worldview that we're living in right now where many pastors, less than 50% have a biblical worldview. And what we saw was the, the prevalent worldview that is not only among pastors, but among the majority, I believe it was 88% of Americans, is syncretism. And if you weren't here, basically what that means, it's a kind of a mush pot of beliefs. What you think is right, you kind of gather it from, from everything and and everything works for everybody, and everybody is, is amazing in this uh, process, is the, the mindset. People, but it, it, it's people doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, that's, that's what syncretism basically is, is maybe another form of humanism. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. I, I read an article uh, from uh, Pastor John MacArthur, and he actually talked about that. I just want to read a little bit of this article. It says, the, judge, from, the book of Judges describes... One of the longest, bleak, bleakest epochs in Old Testament history. And this era covers about 450 years. and extends from Joshua's conquest of the promised land until the time of Samuel. 450 years. Again, we know that's more than America has been a nation. That entire era is riddled with horrific acts of evil, bloody conflicts, and tales of human misery. It was an age of absolute moral chaos, he writes. He says, during that time at intervals, when the people of Israel would go, grow desperate and they would cry for help, God would raise up some unlikely leader to conquer whatever enemy was oppressing them. These deliverers, known as judges, weren't necessarily upstanding models of spiritual virtue. We know Sam, uh, Samson was one of those. But the Lord would empower and use them to deliver his people from servitude or national disaster. And then when peace was restored, the nation would fall right back into another long stretch of sin and apostasy. It happened every time. 
The cycle is repeated over and over again. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and Judges 21, 25, which is the book's final verse, the writer sums up precisely why it was such a miserable time. That verse says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The idea that everyone should get to define for himself what is right and true is a recipe for disorder and disaster. This, that statement would be a fitting estimation of the moral state in our generation too, he writes. In this increasingly secular, secular culture, most people no longer believe that there is any fixed, inviolable moral standard that they need to obey. People regularly prompt one another with phrases like, well, just find your own truth. Or follow your heart. As if that was a purely noble and upright way to live. But that, according to Scripture, is the distilled essence of sinful foolishness. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. God condemns evil people who refuse to hear his words. Who stubbornly follow their own heart is written in Jeremiah 13. In short, as Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So the crisis is real. The, 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 the crisis that you and I are living is real. It's not new, but it's real for what we're living in right now. And I believe, again, with all my heart, we're in it. But I want to encourage you once again, as I said last week, I don't believe that all hope is lost. I don't believe that we, we need to walk around and uh, just put our heads down and be discouraged and depressed all the time because we see these things. I, I don't believe no matter what happens this coming Tuesday that we need to walk around with our heads down and being depressed. And the reason why is because we have a high calling. We have a calling from Almighty God no matter where we live, no matter what blessings we enjoy or what we don't enjoy. We are the people of God. Man, we, the church, just as we studied for two years, went through grave persecution, severe difficulty. There was great things that the church has endured throughout all the church age. And that's why when we have days like this where we honor our veterans and when we celebrate what God has blessed us with and we pray and sing once again, God, please bless America. God, shed your grace on America. It's real. We live in an exceptional nation. We live in a time in this nation that is so blessed. No matter what gas prices are, no matter if we run out of diesel, no matter if, if food prices are higher than we've ever experienced before, whatever the case may be, we are a blessed nation. Now, we may be facing the judgment of God, and we may be seeing the judgment of God unfolding before our eyes, and we may see it get even worse. We still don't have a reason to hang our heads and be depressed. Said last week, we should feel blessed to have been called for this time and purpose. God has, has given us life and given us opportunity in 2022 to be the people of God that He has called His church to be for all of time. And so I don't want to do that. I wish I was back where I could see Jesus face to face. And you might have been hung on a cross like He was too, maybe upside down like Peter. Again, we're living in a blessed time. And there is absolutely a lineage. There's a remnant. And I hope that every person in this room is a part of it. 
I'm not naive to think that every person in this room is a part of the remnant. But I hope you are. I want our church to be a part of it. I pray that we don't have families more influenced by the culture than the Bible. And I spoke on that a little bit last week as well. If that's going on in your home, please hear me. Parents, if that's what's going on in your home, if the culture is influencing your kids more than the Bible, then there's a grave spiritual injustice being done. I read a post, and I may not make people happy, but there's a lot of Bible preachers that are willing to say things like this, and I, I praise God for them. I wish I was better at social media. I, I just, I'm just not. A pastor friend of mine repost, reposted what uh, a guy named Shane Pruitt said. Similar to what I said last week, but the post gives a long-standing biblical worldview of the importance of the church. The God-ordained purpose in place of the church. Something that the, the people of God, for, for many generations, held in high esteem and, and understood they were a part of. And, 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 and there was little compromise in, in, in true Christians, if, if any. But now we live in a different era where once strong, thought strong Christians are allowing the culture to dictate to them their connection, their investment, and their faithfulness to the church. He said this, as parents, when our actions tell our kids that chasing a ball, and he said, insert whatever else, it doesn't have to be a ball game, when our actions tell our kids that chasing a ball is a greater priority than chasing Christ, that commitment to hobbies is a greater priority than commitment to church, then we can't be surprised when Christ and his church is a low priority to them when they become adults. If you choose to take your kids to a ball game or allow them to do that or insert whatever else he said, and they see that there's a greater commitment to Christ, to the world, than Christ and his church, then when they struggle to ever show up to a church again when they're adults, don't be surprised, he says. There are countless scriptures to support this. We don't follow the law to be righteous. We know that there's no person who can fulfill the law completely and be righteous. But this is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, God, God gave the command because there are seven days in a week. And six days of those week are, are to be lived in diligence, laboring, also enjoying the blessings of being able to serve the Lord, doing everything that we do as unto him. But all done to the glory of God, all of it. But on the seventh day, he said specifically, one day, one day out of all of them, Give it to the Lord to rest, to worship and serve him and to serve others. The Pharisees made it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And so when he came along and on the Sabbath day, he was serving other people and they said he was offending the Sabbath. He wasn't. He was doing exactly what he created the Sabbath day for. The Sabbath day was to say, it's not about me. It's about God. And I'm going to take this time to rest and to serve and worship him and to serve and to worship others. 
Every day should look like that, I believe, but the Lord's day is special in its makeup from the resurrection until now. Again, the church has always prioritized the gathering. What we're doing right now, the church, ecclesia in the Greek, another name to be called out from, to called to something or someone, also has the definition of assembly or gathering. So when many people say, well, you don't have to go to church. You know, you, you don't have to go to a building. You don't have to go to where there is metal and wood and sheetrock. But if you're a child of God, you better be in the gathering of the people of God. And what's unique is that God has given us his directions and he's given us instructions and he's given us the, 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 the whole picture of what he wants us to have during this time. And, and what we see in the New Testament is that this church in every city and in, in, in every area was composed of not only members but ordained pastors and elders and deacons not doing whatever somebody wants to do even when it's something good to do. Well, we didn't go to church today, but what we did is we did that. And then calling it church. There was an argument, a comment I happened to see on that post. That's surprising, I know, to many people that there would be a comment against a post like that from any Christian, right? There, surely no Christian has an argument uh, with, with, with a biblical worldview. But this argument, this comment, is the same argument that's been since the world, since the culture slithered in under the power of Satan. The God of this world, like, like a constrictor, slowly started wrapping itself around the kids and around the activities, squeezing out the biblical standard and worldview. And as, as, as parents wrestled, as, as the grip got tighter and, and things became more uncomfortable and decisions had to be made and parents wrestled with this constrictor and then as it got too difficult, allowed. As soon as the parents allowed, the grip got tighter and tighter until most, if not all, spiritual soundness was gone. The argument to the heritage of the church and to her gathering under leaders that God has ordained, pastors, elders, to do what the church has for all its time that it still does in mountains, mountain villages with great sacrifice in many other countries. Do you know what the American church and its lost spiritual vitality says? Here was the, here was the comment, the argument to that biblical worldview statement. Quote, so confused by this. We, we have a select volleyball club that unfortunately plays on some Sundays. The person says, the church is not a building, but the people in it. We have seen young hearts change just from praying with teams after games. So much so that we've been asked why, I mean, would you, would you pray for me? Church with fellow believers is so, they emphasize, so important. I agree. The witnessing just through simple prayer from our kids leading, it is church too. Even if it's on Sunday and, and not in the building deemed church, go out and tell the good news. So please 
Just because the kids slash young adults are at these activities surely does not mean the church is not alive. It's a God, a little g. That's what it is. It's a religion made up of what seems right in man's own eyes. Not what the church has historically been, not what the Bible tells us the church should be. And I share that because if the church, if the professing believers in Jesus Christ don't live like Jesus, when you say Jesus, you can't separate Jesus, the head of the church, from the body, the members of the church. If we don't live like Jesus is our everything, if we don't actually live that out, then we are much like what Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 14. He said, if anyone comes to me does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross, when those decisions become difficult and you have to choose Jesus over the culture, and you have to choose Jesus over your kids' activities, you have to choose Jesus over anything that the enemy tries to do, and it becomes difficult as the enemy is constricting and squeezing. He says that whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, follow after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down first and calculate cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and he knows he can't finish it, he can't finish it, all look at him and begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build said he was a Christian. He actually didn't finish. Or what king, when he sits out to meet another king in battle, will not sit down first and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if salt... If even salt has become tasteless, what will it be seasoned? It's useless, neither for the soul or for the manure palm. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, the crisis at the, the end demands an unbridled, passionate pursuit of Christ by his church. The argument today, people say, yeah, but that's just the culture we live in. That's the world we live in. There's sports on Sundays now, and there's sports on Wednesdays now, and, and, and sports and activities and, and this and that. They have our life. They rule us. That's just the way it is. At one point in time, it wasn't like that. But what happened is what I shared a while ago. And as the enemy kept squeezing and taking more from the people of God, the people of God let him. And now it is the culture. I read a devotion last week that said this. Solomon received instruction from what happened to other people, not just from his own experiences. Some people refuse to listen, and the only way they will learn is by suffering the consequences of their choices and actions. Benjamin Franklin wrote this. Experience keeps a dear school, but fools will learn at no other. I shared years ago, you can learn two ways. You can learn from personal experience, and you can learn from the experience of others. Learning from personal experience is often a foolish way, because that means you, ref you refuse to listen from the experience, learn from the experience of others. When somebody who's gone there and done that before and can tell you, hey, don't go down that road. Hey, don't do this. It'll cost you something. It's wise to listen to that person and learn from them. 
versus saying, well, I know what you do. I'm just going to do what I want to do, and then going through it and suffering yourself. May we be wise and learn from God's Word and for the mistakes of others before us so that you and I in the crisis in the end aren't found spiritually asleep. But as a wise watchman of the house, a servant faithful when his Lord returns. This morning, by, by way of addressing more foundational things, I, I want to look at the rapture theories. And, and it may be a little more instructional this morning because it is more foundational things. Uh, other terms concerning the end times. Now, the reason I felt led to put this here is because uh, when we talk about the end, a major topic is what is deemed the rapture of the church. Remember we saw Paul's charge to the Thessalonian believers. The day of the Lord, he said, wouldn't overtake the believers as a thief in the night because they were not in darkness, but they were in light. So let's define rapture and some of these words, words and, and views uh, because when we talk about the end times, these are the words used and I believe that will help us walk by faith to better grasp biblical truth and what should be our faithful response. First of all, the word rapture does not appear in Scripture. <clears throat> I think a lot of people know that, but maybe you don't know that. The word rapture is not found in God's Word. We do see words like resurrected and resurrection and raised. The word rapture actually is derived from the Latin translation of the verse or the word that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. This is what 4.17 says. Then we who are alive and remain will be, here it is, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Praise God. The believers living at the time of Christ's return will be snatched away together with the resurrected saints, those who have died before and are resurrected. The verb meaning to catch up is harpezo. It was rendered in the Latin Vulgate, rapture. And so the parousia, which we talked about last week, the Greek word for the presence, the second coming, is sometimes called the rapture. English translations translate the key word in that verse, again, caught up or snatched up. Be caught up together. Several views among Christians about the exact nature and the timing of this rapture, of this snatching up, this catching up, and the reason why is it's because it's primary relationship to other eschatological events in Scripture. The rapture doctrine is employed, perhaps, <clears throat> most prominently in what is called premillennialism. For premillennialists, the rapture occurs in conjunction with the Great Tribulation. And we can see in Daniel chapter 9, Matthew 24, uh, Revelation chapter 7, um, premillennialists agree that the rapture is connected with the resurrection of believers before the millennial, which is the, was, was called the thousand-year reign of Christ. Premillennialists differ, however, on when the rapture will occur within the timeline. Before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation. The premillennial reading is the most literal reading of these events, assuming there's a basic chronological timeline between the second coming, the resurrection of the righteous, the rapture, and the millennial reign. Now, the timing of the rapture is broken into several rapture theories. Okay, so here's what I think is important for us to grasp. We're talking about foundational issues. The first rapture theory is called the pre-tribulational rapture theory. 
And I'm saying theories because they are all theories. We'll get into that a little more later. Pre-trib rapture theory. This view maintains the rapture occurs when Jesus comes secretly to gather the church prior to a seven-year great tribulation that precedes the return of Christ to earth. That's the pre-trib. So there's a seven-year period of tribulation. And before that tribulation occurs, the pre-trib theory says that the church will be taken out, taken out before it ever happens. There's a mid-trib or mid-tribulation rapture theory. This is similar to the pre-tribulation rapture theory uh, view, except that it locates the rapture after the first three and a half years at a point when the Antichrist assumes power and there is great tribulation on the earth. So the mid-trib is believed that the church, the believers who haven't already died and gone on to be with the Lord, uh, will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And then the Antichrist will take power after that first three and a half years of peace and everything, everything's saying peace and safety. But then he'll come on the scene, the church is raptured, and then it gets really, really bad. The wrath of God's poured out um, eventually at some point in time. But then that kind of leads to the next rapture theory, and that's the pre-wrath rapture theory. This position argues that the rapture will occur toward the end of the tribulation, maybe somewhere in between the midpoint and the end point of the tribulation. And it argues that um, the taking out of God's people will happen before the full outpouring of God's wrath with the bold judgments that we read in Revelation chapter 16. And then there's the post-tribulation theory. This view sees the rapture as occurring simultaneous to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Now typically, the rapture positions are connected, as I said, with millennial positions. Millennial positions, so you have an understanding, seven-year tribulation on the earth, there are different rapture theories when the church is actually taken out of this earth. And then there's a millennial reign. After that tribulation period, there is a thousand-year reign of Christ on, on the earth is what we gather. And again, these positions are important as well. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, we see about this millennial period there, he laid hold of the dragon, a ser the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Then he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison and we won't get into what happens next because that will be later down the road. So the millennial positions, we saw the rapture theories, the millennial positions, there are premillennialists, and they place the coming of Christ before the millennium, what we just read, which they see as the personal reign of Christ on the earth. Premillennialists believe that Jesus actually will come to this earth and reign for a thousand years. In the very early church, premillennialism, then known as Kiliism, 
was widely accepted. But in the Middle Ages, Kiliosm was rejected as heretical. And this may have been why Luther, Martin Luther, dismissed it as the dream of Christ reigning on earth. Premillennialists can actually bro be broken into two different categories, though. Premillennialists, there are dispensational premillennialists. And that is, Christ will return to rapture the church before the tribulation, what we sell will go, pre-trib. Believers will be in heaven during the tribulation. In the millennium of the nation, uh, in the millennium of the nation Israel will experience the blessings of God promised to Abraham and David. New Testament believers are grafted to share in the covenant blessings. The church today is not completely experiencing the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. The millennium is an intermediate kingdom of a thousand years in which Christ reigns before the establishment of the eternal kingdom, the eternal state. And then the second are the historic premillennialists. Christ will return at the end of this age to reign for a thousand years. Believers will go through the tribulation. In the millennium of the nation Israel and faithful followers of Christ will experience the blessings of God promised to Abraham and David and share in the covenant blessings. The church today is not completely experiencing the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. The millennium is an intermediate kingdom of a thousand years in which Christ reigns before the establishment of the eternal kingdom. Then there are postmillennialists. They place the coming of Christ after the millennium which it conceives as a spiritual presence of Christ working in and through his church to give, if we will, a golden age, a period of unexampled prosperity in the church's ministry, a thousand years. And then you have amillennialist. Amillennialism denies the reality of an actual thousand-year reign, either in a sense which the premillennialist, premillennialist, that's a tongue twister, or postmillennialist conceives it. The theory rests upon the totally symbolic interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 through 7 that we just read a while ago. The amillennialist says that that is just a, a, a representation, a symbolic interpretation. And the same type of treatment to the millennial passages of the Old Testament is given. Most present-day amillennialists view these as descriptions of the blessedness the church now experiences that we are living in right now. Millennialism, whether pre or post, recognizes the thousand years of Revelation 22 through 7 as a real indication of time. W.W. Milligan, an amillennialist, writes this, the thousand years mentioned in the passage express no period of time. So the amillennialist says, no, there's no actual thousand-year reign of Christ. It's a it's, it's, it's symbolic thing. It's, a, it's an age in which the church exists in a, in a golden age of Christ's blessing and rule. Now, I want to do something for a specific reason, and, and most of you will recognize some of the names on this list because there's a reason I'm doing this, okay? We just went through the different... Um, millennial positions, okay? These are some of the names of men who are associated with particular positions regarding the millennial reign. The first group that we saw was dispensation, dispensational premillennialism. 
Look at the names on that group. Clement, these are early believers. Polycarp, Ignatius, Tertullian, Cyprian, Tyndale. There's some Anabaptists, Moravians, Mennonites, John Wesley. Some of you may know that name. Ryrie, Walverd, Graham, Criswell, Moore, Russell Moore, Albert Moeller, Charles Swindoll, more recent people, John MacArthur. And then the historic premillennialism. These are the names. George Ladd, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Millard, uh, Millard Erickson's, Craig Bloomberg, or Blumberg, uh, Beasley Murray, Grant Osborne, Wayne Grudem, Anthony Hokum, uh, Hokuma, sorry, and Robert Gundry. The next group, postmillennialism, David Whitby, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley, Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, Augustus Strong, B.H. Carroll. This is interesting. Anybody know who B.H. Carroll is? Anybody? B.H. Carroll helped found uh, the Southwestern Theological Seminary, Baptist Theological Seminary here in Fort Worth. His son was a superintendent for Carroll ISD, and that's why it's called Carroll ISD. Interesting. This guy, he also wrote a book, or was a part of a trail of blood, G.W. Truitt. It's another interesting person to study. And then all millennialism, Origen, Augustine, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, B.B. Warfield, Burkhoff, G. Beale, and W. Hendrickson. Now share those names and in those positions for a reason. Because the temptation is to rely on man. The temptation is to associate with the position of a person that you deem right. You see, modern names that you may know and think, ah, well, they must be right. I, I, I know Swindoll. I, I, I know MacArthur. Oh, I, I know B.H. I, I know some of these names. They're, I'm familiar with these people. So that, that must be the right position. But I want to, as the pastor of this church, to ensure that we as a church have a tight grip, a firm stance on what Jesus says. Amen. My call, my job is to teach and preach the Word of God both in season and out of season. 2 Timothy chapter 4, that's what Paul told Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who is, to judge the living, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll want to, tell, they'll want to hear that it's okay not to show your kids how to live for Christ and but they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will pat them on the backs and tell them that what they want to do is just fine. That's what it says, in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I'm sure God is fine with this. But you, preacher, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. 
He, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the Bible tells us, to ensure that we are strong and prepared no matter what doctrines come along, no matter what theories come along, no matter what man says that you and I are strong and prepared. Ephesians 4, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure. What does a mature man look like? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, till we look like Christ as a church. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head of the church, even Christ. And it's from Christ that the whole body is being fitted. It's, it's connected, held together by, every, by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual member, each individual part. And it causes, as each person's working the way they're supposed to work, it causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. My desire through this study isn't that you develop a firm position that men have deemed as right, but that you do, as I said last week, that your faith, that your purpose, that your spiritual eyes are elevated, that you live as an ambassador for Christ, anticipating our King's return, and that you are found faithful. And therefore rewarded accordingly, as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not to me only, he says, but also to all who loved, who have loved his appearing. That's my desire. That, that's my, my, my desire in, in going through this study, that you are equipped, that you are found faithful and rewarded at the judgment by the King of Kings. I love our church so much, and I want each of you to experience the joy of living for Christ, regardless of what we endure, regardless of the crisis at the end. Remember what we saw last week, Matthew 24, and I'm almost done. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, you, you won't be overtaken like a, like, like a thief because you're not in, uh, in the dark, but you don't know what day your, your, your Lord's coming, so be on alert. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave, that servant, whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if the evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming from a long time. I still got time to do this. I just want to live life. I just want to enjoy my world. I'll, I'll be more faithful to God later. That's the wrong heart. 
That's, that's evidence of an unconverted heart. He says that. He begins to beat his fellow slaves, eat and drink with the drunkards, live like a lost person. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know, but he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. My prayer this morning is that you understand there's a lot to know about the end. That as we get going in this study and we get further into this study, there are going to be things that you and I, our mind are, is blown, that we still probably have questions for. We're going to see even in the book of Revelation, many of you know this, that, that there's at one point in time, uh, we talked about this uh, at one group, I think it was, I remember maybe our leadership, um, but no, it was in a, uh, it was in a Sunday evening service. Um, at one point in time, the, the Lord reveals to John something, and and then he says, all right, sell that up. That's not for anybody to know right now. There, there are things that you and I are going to live on this earth right now with that we have more questions than answers for about the future. But guess what? What we'll study and learn through all of this, it doesn't change anything for us right now. We are to live the same way as those, those, those servants found doing, those servants alert those servants ready for the Lord's return. That's my desire, is that every single one of us have a passion every day to hold Christ up, to be loving his return, to be anticipating his return, to be living and serving as if he is coming back on a day that we don't know and an hour that we don't know. And I want to challenge you this morning, if you're here and you're like, man, well, I don't want to be in darkness. I, I don't well, I don't want to be cut into pieces and, 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 and be cast in, into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and I, I would ask you this question. If you were to die today or the Lord were to come back today, are you 100% positive that you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven? And if you're here sitting in this, this building this morning, and, and your answer to that question is this, I'm not 100% positive I would go to heaven. Maybe you would say something like this, well, I think I would, I hope I would. I mean, I think I've been a good person. If that's your answer, I want to tell you something that the Bible says. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it's that, it, it says this, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It says that there is none righteous, no, not one. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that sin is us breaking God's law. That's why it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So if you've sinned, you've offended God's law, and you, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's nobody who can be good enough that you can't do enough good works to go to heaven because it's by grace, unmerited favor, that we can be saved then every single person in this room and on this earth is hopeless to make it to heaven by themselves. Amen. There's no hope for you to make it. So when you say, well, I hope I will, there's no hope in yourselves. If you've tried to be a good person, you've tried to live a good life, that falls short of the glory of God. That's why the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever would believe, would surrender, would, would completely submit their life to, whosoever would repent of sin and repent of living for self in the world, whosoever would, would give up, as we read a while ago, give up their own life and surrender all to Christ will be saved, have everlasting life. And so if you've never done that this morning and you're here, and you, you would answer the question I asked a while ago, I hope so, I think so, I've been a good person, I'm telling you right now, unless you repent and turn to Christ in faith this morning, if he were to return the moment I say amen today, the Bible says that you would be separated from God for eternity, facing his wrath, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you don't have to do that. Today you can surrender your life to Christ. This morning we're going to have an invitation. Our worship pastor is going to lead a song, and you can come to this altar. We've got men and women up here on this front row that can share what I just shared with you, and you could surrender your life to Christ. And you can leave this place today not saying, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. You can leave this place today saying, I know I'm going to heaven. Not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus Christ died in my place. He rose again the third day, and he alone can give me life eternal. So I want to pray, and after I pray, he's going to sing. I want to invite you to come. If you need to make sure of your salvation, you come down here, grab one of these, these people on this front row and say, I want to know I'm going to heaven when I die. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for all you do in this, in this place. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for your word. Uh, God, I, I find great peace and great um, joy and comfort in knowing that we don't have all the answers about the future. We don't have all of the, we don't have every detail about what's going to happen and, and, and what's going to happen to us, but uh, there's great peace and comfort in that because we know you. We know you have us in your hands. Your people, you will never let us go. God, we find great peace in, in knowing that you not only have all the answers, but you've written it all out. It's already established from all of eternity. So again, we, we, we trust you and, and we love you and uh, we, we just want to be those faithful servants that are found faithful when you return, God. And I do pray for those who may be still lost, those who don't have assurance of eternity with you, that they'll come to this altar this morning and ask the question, what do I have to do to be saved? Lord, just move now in this invitation. We'll praise you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand and come as he sings.